Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. We relate to the world in such a way, how many of you remember, you're maybe you're a little bit older, the moral majority from the 1980s, all right? This is, go through the, you know, politics is really the way to go to affect change in society. That we should be getting into politics, we should legislate morality for all intents and purposes. Let's legislate morality, let's get politicians, right, in the, in the public sphere, and that we can have Christian principles and values upheld. You with me on this? So that would be number one that he talks about in his book. And let me just say this right now. He espouses the idea that this is not the way to go. It doesn't mean, don't him, don't come up to me after the meeting and the message and say, but what about this? Or what, uh, this is not the end all be all. This is one sermon. I'm giving you only a little fraction, like uh, just a little tidbit into what he's really talking about. But he makes a lot of sense. And he's got a lot of people that believe in the same thing. John Piper, I said Tim Keller, people that are a lot smarter than I am, but people I deeply respect. That was number one. Number two was purity from. Another way that the church can relate to the culture. And this one's common sense. That we kind of become ensconced away, like kind of hidden in our own little enclaves and groups. And we move away. Like you would know like the Anabaptists, like the, uh, the Mennonites and the Amish. Those would be examples of groups that say, you know what happens? When we try to, when the church says, we're going to make the society like the church... The church becomes like the society. Does that make sense? This is what they would say. This is why those groups kind of move away. There's really not, everything's going to burn up. And there's different, again, there are different ideas within each of these. But the world is going to burn up everything in it. So the only thing that's not is souls. So all we really should do is go after souls. All right, that's number two. Number three, if you're not put to sleep yet. Relevant to. Relevant to, and this one's pretty basic as well. That the church is outdated. That we need to be, we need to keep up with things. We need to be more hip. We need to have, you know, very, you know, the way we dress needs to be really slick. The way we move, the things we say, the music that we use, that everything has to relate to the culture. And this is something, I was talking to Pastor Linda about it last night. I would say this is something that really hit me about 20 years ago when I really started to get into ministry and I started to come alive. I looked at this and I looked at some of these secret models that were out there, whether it was Willow Creek, whether it was, uh, you know, Rick Warren in California. I looked at Saddleback, all these other churches, and I said, maybe that's the way we're really supposed to go. Maybe we really are just supposed to be relevant and relate to the culture, and then people are going to come in, man. They're going to come in droves. And so what is, what is the answer? Again, this, you may have a different opinion, but this makes a lot of sense to me. And number four, what he talks about in his book is this. A faithful presence within a community. A faithful presence within. This is how we are supposed to relate to the culture in which we live in. What does that look like? What does this mean? This means, and this is wild. I'm driving this week and I was somewhere that I usually am not in a neighboring town. I don't want to give you the exact area because maybe, and I saw this church. 
And I've never seen this church before. And it just kind of hit me. It was the, the title of the, the, the title of the church was just the name of the church was kind of weird. Again, it was just my opinion. It was weird. And some of the stuff I saw on the outside, I don't know anything about the church. Who am I to judge? I don't know anything about these people. But I thought about, I'm just looking around. There are so many churches that are everywhere. You notice that? The proliferation of churches. And you hear all these things about churches that are closing. Right? Every, every week, oh man, how many churches in America close? Do you know, by the way, there are over 40,000 denominations? It's part of our problem. 40,000 Protestant denominations. Not Catholic, just Protestant. That's insane. How can there be that many? So I'm saying there's all these different churches. And why am I bringing that up? Because you can be a church within a community, but you're really not present within the community. Did you get that? You can be in a community, but what we talked about this morning, what Megan mentioned, this is being a presence in the community, a real presence in the community. Tim Keller shared a story in his talk. Much of it would probably be, I don't know, not not very interesting to you. Tim Keller, I love Tim Keller. He's a scholar. He's an amazing teacher, but sometimes he can be a little, maybe a little too intellectual at times, but when he's talking, it was interesting. He brought up, he said there was a story of one of his friends who had a church and this church was going to be moving from the place they were in and somebody who wasn't a Christian said, man, I hope that church doesn't leave. You know why? Because if they leave, our taxes are going to go up. Did you get that? You, this is what City on a Hill Community Church, I'm kind of like... I'm sounding the trumpet. It's been sounded for years. Don't get me wrong. But something happened a couple of weeks ago in this place that we have never seen before. I would put before you Compassion Sunday last month is one of the greatest events that's ever taken place in the history of this church. Ever. And, and not just the accolades and stuff, but people in the community who are not Christians are looking at us and may they continue to look at us and say, those are a people that don't just sit behind four walls. They actually are present in the community. They care about the community. They care about the life of it. We have teachers in schools. We have, we have nurses in hospitals. They're all over the place. That's who we are supposed to be in the community. We're not supposed to be a people that beat people down over the head with the gospel. From the time I'm a pastor's kid, I have, well, I've seen a lot of situations where people have presented the gospel in such a way that I cringed. I've cringed so many times like, oh, did you really just say that to somebody? And people get beat down over the head. And you know what happens a lot of times? If triumphalism, which is the first one, defensive against... If we tell people we have all the answers and you need to think the way we do, makes them think they're second class citizens. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is what the author's premise was in the book and I loved it. He said, if we aim for power, if we aim for power, they're never going to give it to us. But if we serve the community, they'll hand us power. They'll say, hey, listen, can you help us in this area? They'll want us involved in politics. They'll want us involved in decision making. They'll say, can we, can, what can you do to help us in this situation? They will look to us to help make decisions. That's what it means to be a faithful presence within the community. We're on our way. I'm saying to us, hey, I'm commending us. We're on our way, but there's more to be done. Alright, you with me? So that's really the 30,000 foot view of the church. Really making it simple. I could talk a lot longer about each one, but I can see some of your faces anyway. And you're like, alright, what am I eating after church? <clears throat> I'm not done yet. Now, 
How do we, as Christians, how do we be a people, the title of the sermon, right? Pass the salt, turn on the light. You like that? Yeah, you better. Yeah, yeah. No love for the title? Yeah, long, yeah I'd love to just sit. Megan's like, really? How, I'd just love to sit there and think of like sermon titles. I'll waste hours of my life just thinking of sermon titles. Googling things. Nah, that's not good enough. That's not good. I'm like, wait, I got to finish the sermon before I worry about the title. Anyway, all right. So how are we as a people individually, how do we, how are we salt and light really in the community? And you know, Jesus said this here in the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I love this because, you know what? You've heard the Sermon on the Mount probably so many times. How many of you heard the Sermon on the Mount, right? Greatest sermon ever preached? You're in church. Some of you are like, wait, do I say yes? to Yeah, 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 right? Greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Really wasn't a trick question. Greatest sermon ever preached. What's interesting, though, is you can lose things with the context here. Because you read this and you go, oh, that's pretty cool. Jesus said that, right? You have to understand. He said this to a people living in this. Uh, he said it on a hillside. We were there this summer. When we went to Israel this summer in the, in the general vicinity, were we in the exact location where Jesus was standing? Oh, like sitting, No, it was a pretty powerful moment, though, to be there where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered, right? I'm sitting there going, how did he project his voice and all of these people heard him? I don't know. Miracle. But he spoke these words, and you have to understand the people that were listening to him in this little area in Palestine, they were not the distinguished ones. They were under Roman occupation. They couldn't pass any laws. Do you see this? Their destinies were not their own, their future. They didn't have much say in these things. So here is this itinerant preacher from, from nowhere that comes up and he starts rising up and people start to listen to him. And he tells people, you are the salt of the earth. Do you realize how revolutionary this would have been to somebody that was sitting there listening to it? He says this to this motley crew. Many of those people in the ancient times would have been illiterate. And he says these words to them. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Are you kidding me? Did you make a mistake, Jesus? Are you with the wrong crowd? Was there another crowd that you meant to talk to? With all the doctors and all the lawyers and all the politicians? No, no, no. He didn't say this to a delegation at the UN. He didn't say this to Parliament and Congress and City Hall. He said it to normal, ordinary people like us. You are the salt of the world. One of my favorite books, Salt, A History. Mark Kurlansky, if you have it, you know, recreationally, you can read this one. You'll enjoy this one about salt. A world history. And the author's premise is that talks about that salt was so important in the ancient world. Did you know they financed wars because of salt? Yes, battles took place over salt. That's why when you hear, you ever hear the, the, the term before, somebody got assaulted, right? That's where it comes from. No, no, it doesn't come from that. It just sounded good, right? Don't think, yeah, that's, that's not true. Yeah. Yeah, I just made that up. Um, But Plato said, listen, Plato said salt was dear to the gods. Homer said it was a divine substance. It was prized. This is what empires were built around. You wouldn't know that by reading this text. 
So when Jesus says these words, you are the salt of the earth, everybody in their mind would have realized, everybody would have known how powerful, how important, and how instrumental salt was to the life in a community. Are you with me? Now, you should know this about salt. Well, it's interesting. There are all different types of salt. There's rock salt, and there's, and there's table salt. Pastor Linda's not here this morning. She's very good at using table salt. Okay? Oh, gosh. She has a gift. Right? You could go to a fine restaurant, and you're out with Pastor Linda, right? Right? My nephew's, like, shaking his head at me. Yeah. You go to a, she hasn't even tried the food yet. Uh, can you pass the salt? Really? Pass the salt? Do you realize where you are? That steak is perfectly seasoned. You don't need any salt, woman. You don't need any. <laughs> anyway, it's not sea salt. You need, can I give you a little nutrition lesson? Let me just stop here for a second. Let me interject this. You know the Morton salt that many of you use that's on your table? It has been stripped. It is devoid. It is bereft of any nutritional value. The little character, like the little stick person that sits on that box, they're laughing at you when you use Morton salt. <laughs> Because there's nothing in it that's good for you. Sea salt, the pink salt, the Himalayan salt. That's the salt that you need. All right? Anyway, that was free. All right? No charge for any of that. Okay? So, but when he's talking to this undistinguished group, right? He's, what is he saying? He's saying his plan to protect the world from decay and corruption is the people that are in front of him. He's saying, it's you. It's you people. I'm not looking at anybody else. I'm looking to ordinary people in this world. And here's the wonderful thing about salt. What does salt have to do? Salt has to lose itself in something else. It has to lose itself. It gives flavor to something else. It points to something else. I have never, ever been to a restaurant or somebody's house and I leaned over to Megan and said, Honey, where do they make salt? Where do they get this salt? I need salt like this. I, I never woke up in the morning and said, I want to have a bowl of salt this morning for breakfast. If maybe you have, I have never done that before. Nobody does that because we know salt is used to flavor something else. But if salt loses its savor, it's trampled under. He's saying, Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the world. You are the ones that are supposed to go out and make a difference. You're all difference makers. You may not believe it. You may be illiterate. You may not have a great job. I don't care what your bank account says. He's saying, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. Do we believe that today? These words are to ring true for us living here and now. We can really change the world. You know what N.T. Wright says? Another brilliant scholar. Uh, This arrested me when I read this many years ago. He said, the greatest threat to Christianity is not communism. It's not atheism. It's not materialism. It's not humanism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, without ever living out the Christian life, without ever becoming involved in the most significant work God is doing on planet Earth. You should put that on the website this week. you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How true is that? I read that all week, right? Sneaking into heaven incognito without ever sharing our faith. Man, that's so many of us. Can I be really honest? Let me just deviate a little bit from my notes. I thought about it and I said, you know what? When I was on fire, I'm a pastor's kid, but there was a time like 20 years ago when I, I, God did something inside my heart and I was lit up. And everything and anything I wanted to do, I wanted to talk to people about Christ. I wanted to read everything I could. And don't get me wrong, I, 
I love the Lord. I still read a lot. But you know what happens sometimes? This can become like a social club. Can I be honest? And we come here and we're happy and we compartmentalize our lives. And we say, yeah, I went to church on Sunday and we come in and it's a social club. And we talk to each other about the gospel. We talk to each other about what God's doing in our lives. And then we leave here and the switch goes off and we say, wait a second, I'm back in the secular world. I'm going to work tomorrow. Let me switch. All right. The way I talk, the way I walk, the things I read. The thi- you, you hearing what I'm saying? Am I preaching yet? That's what we do. I do it. We become so comfortable. It's almost like we become inoculated. We come into church and I see people and they come here and, you know, they get baptized. They come to, you know, they have a conversion experience and they get baptized and they become followers of Christ and they're on fire. And then what happens a couple of months later, not even a year, a couple of months later, they go back to their old routine. It happens all the time. We, this is not supposed to be how we live our lives. We were meant to make a difference. And we are supposed to be the ones that carry the gospel to the people that we meet on an everyday basis. And you know what happens? And I think we miss this too. You know what happens when we actually share the gospel to other people? We think we're just helping those other people. That's what happens a lot of times. I I think when we actually, in simple ways, which I'll get to, I'll get to some practical ways. But when we share the gospel, you know what happens a lot of times? We become a little less self-absorbed. We get less self-absorbed when we see other people. You know what? There are other needs and other people are hurting. And when we talk to them, it makes us come more fully alive. It's not just about... And listen to me. Don't you walk out of here thinking those people that don't know Christ are second-class citizens. Because I don't believe that and you shouldn't either. They are not second-class citizens. And there are people out in the world that have a heck of a lot to teach us. Even about how to reach this community. Going back to that, I'm digressing for a second. Gail Bailey, who Megan has been working with. I don't even know what religion, I don't know what religion is. I don't think she goes to a church. But that woman has a lot to teach me, has a lot to teach us about how to meet the needs of the community, how to serve relentlessly. So don't look at people that are outside of the church and think we have all the answers and we have everything to give them. That's a reason why people are leaving the church. That's a reason why, according to Barna Research, kids, by the time they're 18 years old, over 75% of them are leaving the church. Over 75%, they're leaving. I sat in my, uh, you know, my kids at, at school, and one of my star students just happens to be here today. He's never been here before, and uh, I hope many of you get to meet him after the meeting. Sorry to embarrass you, Sean, but after the kids take their AP exam, my AP kids, this past week, or two weeks, so they take the exam, and most kids, listen, I'm burnt out, they're burnt out. I'm like, we're going to watch a couple of movies. I'm going to watch a couple of movies. I'm done. You get a break, right? You get a break. You don't watch movies during the year. Let's watch, let's watch The Untouchables. Yeah, Al Capone. Shoot them up. Good stuff. Bridge of Spies, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I have this one class. The exam ends. They can chill out. Their teacher's saying, hey, look, take a break. You know what they want to do? They want to have philosophical, existential discussions. Let's talk about life. Mr. Lecce, will you lead us in a Socratic circle? Well, can we have a debate? I'm like, really? You really want a debate? Let's go. For like two weeks, every single day, we sit in class. All right, what's the topic today? I don't know. Here's a list. Of, what do you want to talk about? Meaning of life. What makes people really happy? You go through the list. Grades, everything. And then the other day, it really hit me. It hit me. They wanted to talk about religion. It was so hard for me. I didn't really say much during the period. 
but to listen to 16 and 17 year old kids, really bright kids, and to hear them talk about how church really doesn't have any relevance for their lives. And to hear about, you know what, I can be a Christian, I don't need to go to a church, and my doctrine and what I believe, it doesn't line up, it doesn't align with everything. And these kids went on and on and on, and these are kids that I absolutely love, and the kids left my class, and I wept. Later on that day, I was in my car, and I was heading home, and I wept, because I said to myself, how often am I actually praying for these kids that sit in front of me? When is the last time you wept for somebody that didn't know Christ? When was the last time they brought you to tears because you said, man, they're totally missing out. There's something. There's a life that they were intended to live. This is what they were made for, but they're missing it and they don't have it. Not that I have all the answers, but I have been struck. I have experienced him. I want to know him. I know he's real. He's not just something I read about. He's not just something I talk about. I talk to him on a regular basis. And I want these kids to know him, to know that he's real. There is an enemy. Listen to me. Listen. If you think you are not in a war with your kids, with your co-workers, not with them directly, but there is an enemy that wants to shut us up. There is an enemy that wants us to live and go incognito into heaven. There is an enemy that wants to take us out. And let me tell you, he uses stealth. He is sneaky. He is insidious. He doesn't want us to see this. If I can go, just get them to be quiet and just care about their own lives, oh, I'll really have them. If I can get them to think, man, those people don't want to hear anything you have to say. Don't open your mouth. Just be quiet. Go. It's the safe route. That's the right way to live your life. And you know what happens? We die on the inside. When we share the gospel, we come more fully alive. And you know, in the Bible, you know, I would say, and this is all replete in the Bible, all over the place. And I would say in my experience as a pastor and a pastor's kid growing up around Christians my whole life in all different environments. I would say there's a lot of re- like resistance, right? Do you ever like just read characters in the Bible? God comes to Moses. I'm going to use you, buddy. Backside of the mountain. You're the guy I'm going to use. He's like, I only have a st- 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 stutter and a, a staff. Are well, you going to use me? You're going to use me? But you know who's the patron saint of resistance in the Bible? You want to know who the patron saint is? You ready for this? Jonah. Ah, our boy Jonah. He is the patron saint of resistance. Right? And if you really, if you really don't know the story, I'll just try to sum it up rather quickly. What does Jonah say? Jonah says... I'm not going to Nineveh. If you don't, Jonah's the guy, if you don't know anything about the Bible, Jonah's the guy that gets, he gets stuck in the whale, right? Three days. And, okay, okay, just making sure. And in that story, to sum it up, he's like, listen, I'm not going there in a boat. I'm not going there in a float. I'm not going there in a gale. I'm not going there in a whale. I'm not going to that great town. I'd rather drown, Right? That's kind of the message when you see it. It's all summed up. He's like, I'm not going there by land or sea. He's like, I'm not going there. So leave me be. Just leave me be, God. I'm done with you. That's the message of Jonah. If you want to read the whole book, I just kind of summed it up really quickly. Right? That's what it is. That's really what it is. And there's, there's a writer. His name is Abraham Maslow. And a really brilliant guy. And he wrote about what he calls the Jonah complex. If you take notes, the Jonah complex. And the Jonah complex is... 
He says, we try to evade our destinies, our calling in life. We're, we're trying to run away from it. We are so resistant to what God has in store for our lives a lot of times. And we look around and say, that's not, no, the Jonah complex, that's not for me. I can't really do that. And we're resistant, we're resistant, and we fight, and we fight. Well, there's a message that all of us are born to carry. There's a message when we become Christians that we're supposed to carry. But no, we would rather be silent. We would rather be quiet. We would rather stay to ourselves. So how do you talk to other people about God? Can we just talk about that? Can I hopefully eradicate some of the weird things that I've seen over the course of my life? How do you talk to other people? I love that Tim Keller in another talk, he was getting interviewed. And he had some practical things to say. Things that just resonated with me. He said, why don't we as people, like in trying to marry, right, word and deed. Deed being what we do in the community, right? But then it's hard to bring the word to people, to bring the gospel to people. Why can't we just start with really simple things? Why can't we just let people know, hey, I go to church. Maybe the person bites on that and they say something and they want to get into a conversation. And then you say, I'm a Christian. If they don't say anything, please don't beat people over the head and tell them everything they need. If people are receptive to listening to what you have to say, or they're going through a situation and you say, you know what? I went through a similar situation and this is what I experienced and this is what helped me. And you draw out a biblical principle. Do you understand that is normal behavior? But for my entire life, how many of you know, like, you know, like a, a creepy Christian? You know a creepy Christian? Um, if, uh, if you don't know creepy Christian... Maybe you're a creepy Christian. <laughs> Kidding, but you ever like you ever like talk to people, you know, and, and like you get around in conversation. I remember one time in college talking to some guy, you know, and hey man, how's everything going? How's everything going? Yeah, everything's going. hey, can I pray for you, brother? Hey, can I pray? And they, did you ever notice some people like they change the voice and the voice like changed and it got really low and he was like sort of like whispering at me and I'm like, dude, I'm just saying hi to you, man. How's it going? Everything good? All right. I, note to self, don't talk to him for a little, just kind of stay away from that guy. And I'm sitting saying to myself, how many people like that? Or another guy like that, I, I remember like, you'd watch like sports games or something, like, yeah, hey man, you, what do you think of the game? That was a great game, right? Man, the Jets lost, because they always lose. The Jets lost, man. What do you think? Oh, that stinks, man. The guy's like, yeah, that really stinks, man. You know, but God, man, we just want to pray right now. We just thank you for football. We just thank you that you're holy. Dude, we're watching like a, we just watched a football game. Like, I don't know if we really need to... So, I'm just trying to give you two very, like, simple illustrations of what a creepy Christian sometimes can look like. That some people, like, can back up. You're laughing. Listen, it's true. We need to be so careful in how we present the gospel. Why do you think... I read a lot of research. I study culture. I read all these Barna books and other books that have to do with how we relate to the world... And it's so true when they look at us as hypocrites, right? Homophobic, judgmental, and a lot of it is true. A lot of it is true. How much more successful we would be bringing the gospel to people if we were just maybe, in a sense, kind of normal. And I'm even the other day, one more quick story. I'm at the chiropractor, acupuncturist guy that I go to. He's amazing. He's a Christian. Really good dude. And the workers in there, they know I'm a minister, right? And we talk about whatever. And they're wonderful women. One of the girls saying to me, hey, can I ask you a question about your church? Because I, I, I had two people, not one, but two people. And they're basically telling this girl, they asked her, do you go to church? 
Well, if you don't go to church and you don't get saved, you're going to hell. And I'm sitting there going, oh, why do I have to get put in this position as a Christian? Because that's not Christianity. You're doing nothing good for the gospel. If that's how we handle people and that's how we talk to them, they're going to be turned off. And if I was a Christian, if I wasn't a Christian, I would want no part of it. Can I be totally honest? If, try to imagine you, were nev- you didn't know God. Try to imagine. I know it's hard, but imagine you were not a Christian. Why would you come into a lot of the churches? Why would you? If I came in and wasn't a Christian and didn't know anything, I don't know if I would stay in a Christian church based on how people talk and how they act and what they do. I don't know if I would stay. Oh, is that too real? Oh, sorry. I'm, a pa- I'm not supposed to talk that way? It's true. We have to tell people, look for simple ways. Simple ways. And you know what we're so afraid a lot of times? I said to you before, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Best sermon ever preached. You're all with me now? All right? Best sermon ever preached. You know what the worst sermon ever preached is? It wasn't preached in here. Worst sermon you ever heard, right? Worst sermon you ever heard. Well, I'll tell you what the worst sermon is. And it's in the book of Jonah. You ready for this? It's in the book of Jonah. It's called the Nineveh, right? He's been running. He's been running. He's a man on the run, right? And then he goes in. Eventually, right? God sends him in. Look, this is his message. This is his message. Jonah 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Drop the mic. Boop. Peace. That's the message. That's all he says in his sermon. This is his sermon. This is it. There's no intro, right? He would have failed out in seminary school. Right? This is awful. This is what he says. Look at the response. Look at the response. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Yeah. How? What happened? What happened? How did this take place? I'll tell you how it took place. Because there was an inadequate person with an inadequate message, but there was an adequate God. I would rather have an inadequate message. Stop believing you have to have the whole gospel figured out. That's the enemy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You do not have to have the whole gospel and lay it all out. Well, it says here, brother. And it says here. First of all, don't say brother to somebody that doesn't know what the heck you're talking about. I'm not your brother. They're going to think that's kind of weird. But you don't have to give somebody the whole gospel. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. So here he is. He gives this message. People, what happens? People's lives are changed because there is a more than adequate God who used an inadequate person. Do you realize when words leave our mouth, the power, we have to trust the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but we have to trust it's a miracle every time somebody comes to see who God really is. Every time somebody comes and realizes and accepts the salvific work of Jesus Christ, it's a miracle. We need to be the ones that take the first step and say, you know what, God, you're leading me into this conversation. I'm going to trust you and believe that you put me here and that you're going to do something. I don't need to do something. Stop trying to debate people. Stop trying to make people see what you see. You can't do it. Only he can. You're not alone. You are not alone. And think about it. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? Do you ever think about that? What's the worst thing that could possibly happen if you talk to somebody? 
I know, for many of us, our biggest fear, I just don't know. What's the worst thing that somebody could say? Hey, you know what? Thanks, man. I, I, I'm not going to come to church. I can't, I, I can't make it. Uh, you know, thanks, man. I appreciate you wanting to pray for me. Pastor Linda, the other day, we were waiting for, uh, for Brian Harden. We were going to have dinner at a restaurant. We were in a car, and we, just, we, we met this lady came up to us out of nowhere. And I think she, you know, she was on, it seemed like she was on drugs. I don't know. But she wanted money from us. And then, and then there she is. Pastor Linda's like, can I pray for you? You know, before she left. And the woman was like a little taken back. But then she was like, yeah, yeah, all right. I haven't had somebody pray for me in like a long time. And then Pastor Linda prayed for her. And then the woman just started to talk. And she kept it really simple. And, you know, Pastor Linda, it was real. And it was like kind of powerful. And I'm looking in the back seat. And I'm like, man, I wouldn't have done that. I'm a preacher. But I'm like, man, all right, that's, you can do that. But I was impressed. Took advantage of an opportunity. And so often we can be so fearful, right? What's going to happen? What's the worst thing? How many of you know Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great, uh, great story. He, uh, one of his prize generals, uh, the prize general's daughter was getting married. And Alexander said to him, hey, I want to pay for your daughter's wedding. I want to pay for the whole thing, the whole wedding. Guy says, wow, that's, that's great. I'm going to take you up on that. Who wouldn't, right? Alexander the Great, right? He's going to pay for your daughter's wedding. This is a great opportunity. Has the wedding. Takes the sum of what he owes from what he paid for the wedding. Gives it to one of Alexander's stewards. The steward is like in shock. He's in disbelief. What? That's how much you spent on the wedding? Do you think I'm going to bring this to Alexander and he's going to be happy? So there's a steward and he walks in like sheepishly and he goes into Alexander and he tells him how much the wedding cost. And Alexander can see fear on the man's face. And Alexander said to him, you shouldn't think that way. You see, he's smiling from ear to ear. He said, I am so happy. This is the greatest honor that my general could give me because he knows two things. One, I am rich. And number two, I am generous. The problem with us is when we look at God sometimes, we don't realize how rich he is. We don't realize how generous he is. Your God is too small. Did you hear what I just said? Many times your God is too small. He wants to move in people's lives and he's waiting for people like us to open our mouths. Can I show you a picture? I didn't know if I was going to do this. I'm going a little longer today. I don't really care. I don't care what you think. Um, this is more than all the 12 apostles, but there's enough of them there. There weren't many pictures online. I wasn't going to create something from scratch of my own. But I, can I just read you? I got this from a book by Mark Batterson. He just had a little piece in there. Can I read you what happened to all of the apostles? People that said, like, we think about our fears and we think about the things that we complain about and bringing the gospel forward. Can I show you what happened to each of these apostles? Can I read this for you? You ready for this? All right, pay attention. Okay. AD 44, King Herod ordered that James, the son of Zebedee, be thrust through with the sword. Number one, gone. First apostle to be martyred. So the bloodbath begins. Luke was hung by the neck from an olive tree in Greece. Doubting Thomas, we call him Doubting Tom, preached on that a couple of weeks ago, pierced with a pine spear, tortured with red hot plates, and burned alive in India. I'm not done. In AD 54, the proconsul of Heropolis had Philip tortured and crucified because his wife converted. (laughs) 
She converted to Christianity while listening to Philip preach. He continued to preach while on the cross. Yeah, that really happened. That's a matter of historical record. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged to death in Armenia. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. After surviving the hundred foot fall, he was clubbed to death by a mob. Simon the Zealot was crucified by a governor of Syria in AD 74. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, sorry. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death and then beheaded. Peter, crucified upside down at his own request. John the Beloved, many of you know, only disciple to die of natural causes, but that's only because he survived his own execution, which many of you probably didn't know. When a cauldron of boiling oil could not kill John, Emperor Diocletian exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he lived until his death in AD 95. Stun silence. That's what I expected. And we complain and we're worried about what's going to happen when we just want to ask somebody a question maybe or we just want to bring the gospel to them. How much do you have to not love somebody in order to keep this message, message to yourself? We don't get like this. You don't hear me preach like this a lot. It doesn't happen. We don't talk a lot about that. We probably should talk more about this stuff. We really should. This is so important that we would be a people. And what about the persecution today? People in other sides of the world and what they're giving up and what they've lost. I heard Francis Chan talk about it this week. He was in India and he saw people that were missing eyes and missing limbs. People that stayed true to Christ and they would not give in. Fingers cut off. You name it. And people said, no, I will not give in. I will worship Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. You can take my life because I know I'm going to be a martyr. And I know what's going to be waiting for me on the other side. Where's our faith? How comfortable it is in just in America. And finally, here's my last thing I promise as we come to the table. I want to give you a, kind of an analogy, an illustration that I was thinking hard about all week. And it's from the athletic arena. Can you imagine, I want you to think about Christianity kind of as a sport, right? Christianity as a sport. Let me take my jacket off for this. So think about Christianity as a sport. What happens when there is a team that is preparing to play in a game, right? What happens is the team practices all week, right? You practice, practice, practice. And then before the game, right, the coach, somebody comes in and gives some sort of inspirational speech. You talk about, hey, this is the game plan. This is what we're going to do. This is what you train for. You go out and execute now, right? Uniform is on. Eye black is on. Everyone's ready to go. You know what the message is. The problem is, Christianity for many of us can be, is that we just kind of huddle up and we do a great job looking good in our uniforms and we hang out in the locker room and we never actually make it onto the athletic field. We never make it onto the field and we sit in our huddles and we talk about how great we look and we talk about the message. Listen, how many inspirational messages can you listen to in a church? When you die one day, Jesus is not going to ask you, how many inspirational sermons did you hear in your lifetime? How many times did you huddle up in the locker room? He's going to say, how many times did you take what you heard in the locker room and you brought it out and you say, I'm going to apply it actually on the athletic field. 
Because there is a crowd. What about the crowd that is out there? The crowd is waiting to see the team come on the field. The crowd is waiting to see courage. The crowd is waiting to see sacrifice. The crowd is waiting to see people that are going to be real and true. Not perfect, but people that are willing to lay down their lives for something. Not people that are frauds. Not people that are hypocrites. But people that say, I'm going to strive for this. I want this. We have become so comfortable. If you don't understand that analogy, let me just boil it down to this. Let me distill it. I'm telling us, City on a Hill Community Church, get out of the huddle. Get into the game. Get off the sidelines. Get your uniform dirty. Because at the end of the day, when you take your last breath, What's going to matter is, did you know him? Did you love God? And did you love other people? Did you take the message to people that didn't know it? How many opportunities were lost? Carpe diem, seize the day. Lord, as we come to an end in this service and as we come to this glorious table. Father, I ask that you would arrest us. Father, I ask that you would rearrange us. Father, I ask that you would change us. Father, I ask that a new fire for those people that are out there, Lord, that you would use us, that we would believe you. Lord, that you would unleash us into the community. You would unleash us into our cubicles tomorrow. You would unleash us into the hospitals tomorrow. You would unleash us into the schools tomorrow. You would unleash us even with our kids and raising our kids. Father, may we be a people that go hard after you. May we not sit back. May we not be reticent when you want us to speak. Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would move on us. Father, I ask that we would be a people that really believe you and trust you that you are good and you are generous and that you love those people and you're waiting for us to open our mouths. Lord, make us be courageous. Father, may we be risk takers. Father, may we as a city on a hill community church, may we be more of a faithful presence within the Longwood community. Because of what you did on this cross. This is your body, Father. This is your blood. You didn't give up your life for people so that we can dress nice and come to church and just talk about you. And after the meeting's over, smile and move on with our day and not talk to other people and compartmentalize things. You laid down your life for your bride, for a spotless bride, for a people that would take this message forward. Father, we take that message forward with power by the spirit of the living God. Lord, we take it forward and know that you are with us every step of the way. We are not alone. May we as soldiers go out of this church and go into this community. And Father, may we be difference makers, pass the salt, turn on the light. That's what we're supposed to do. May these things happen in name. Amen. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.